So Luke chapter 22, verse 7 to 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Okay, we're going to read again from God's Word. And this time we're going to be reading Isaiah 53, um, which if you're using the Bibles, it's page 735. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet two of his generation protested. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand after he has suffered. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will will justify many. 
and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't met you, my name's Mike Sims. Uh, I'm the pastor at Trinity Grove. And it's a privilege to be together today and to reflect on God's word, um, which is what we'll do now. Not even just reflect on it, but consider, can we trust in it? Um, and is it, or is it just a hoax, which is what we're thinking about over this Easter period? Um, and as Jack said, what we'll do after we spend some time in, in reflecting on it, we'll spend the rest of our time formally together in, um, in prayer, in song, and hearing a bit more of uh, God's word of the actual story of his death played out with a, a few songs and a couple Bible readings to finish our service. Let me pray. And then we'll um, look at this uh, idea of Jesus' death. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together today uh, on a day that's called good, but not because of what happened, but because of what it achieved. Uh, Wherever we're at with you, uh, help us just to spend some time now reflecting on whether the death of Jesus changes everything for us. Amen. Now, um, if you've got an outline, um, one of these things, a booklet, um, we just did an Easter one, we usually have a monthly one. Um, Feel free to go to the back table and grab them, and we didn't put the pens out. If you want a pen, just get up, doesn't matter. Um, Get up, grab a pen or a Bible that are up the back there on that table as well. Feel free to do that, not a problem at all. Um, It might be helpful for you to see where we're going and I've got some of the passages in our outline um, this uh, day today on page four. Now, I wonder if you can think of the best hoaxes that you've ever experienced. The best practical joke that you've ever been a part of or witnessed or heard about. I wonder whether this is the best hoax of all time that I, um, that I heard of. Literally this week I heard of it. Um, I'd love to show you the footage of it, but seeing it's in Sweden, in a TV show in Sweden, and none of us speak Swedish. I don't. Anyone speak Swedish? No, I didn't think so. I took a stab. I, I can't because it's in Swedish. But there's some footage of it. Uh, let me just show you, and it's really blurry. But here we have an aeroplane, um, and it's an aeroplane of a guy on the right who's a famous scientist, and he's got a newspaper there that he's opening up, and the guy on the right, who you can't see clearly is a famous uh, a famous soccer player, Swedish soccer player in the 90s. Very few of us, if anyone knows. Um, but he was very big at the time and he was. Um, his name's Anders Limpard. Does anyone know him? No, 90s, he was a big soccer player, one of the big players in Sweden. Um, he played for big teams and so... Um, he would be he would be considered to be like like we would know if you like sport our um, Port Adelaide Crows players he would be like one of the best players. So anyway, this TV show's got him on a private flight with this guy, and this guy here is a scientist and he's opening up the paper and it's their legit paper but it's a doctored one and on the front it talks about a scientist who has actually discovered how to time travel. And he's the scientist and he's telling him about it and he's got the time machine contraption there. 
And Anders Limpard is like kind of a bit miffed by it all. But then what happens on this flight, a massive kind of explosion happens and lights flash and everything goes kind of bright and you can't see anything. And then all of a sudden, uh, as, as everything clears, the scientist says, I think you have just participated in the first ever time travel. This is ridiculous, right? The extent of this, surely Anders is not going to fall for this. Well, anyway, that was so elaborate. What happened next? They spent a lot of money, this uh, Swedish TV show, two fighter jets from the military, actual fighter military jets, flew beside this plane and flew him on in. And he came down and this uh, uh, this um, scientist was uh, greeted by the head of the military and was congratulated for moving two years in advance. From 1997 uh, uh, to 99. Uh, and in that time, if you're a Swedish soccer player, uh, the one thing you don't want to have happen is Norway win the World Cup. <laughs> there was a World Cup in 98 and they managed to convince Anders Limpard that he missed. In 1998, Norway won the World Cup. And he came down and he was being congratulated for the best of it. Can you show the next slide? There he is being greeted by the head military official. He's totally bought it. It's an amazing story. He totally bought it. And what I love the best, the detail that they went to, they got his wife there to greet him and saying, it's two years later, I'm still here. But they made her look older. Not only did they make her look older, have a look at the next photo. You can't see because he's so fluffy. That's his dog who isn't really that fluffy, but they made him look older. They gave him hair extensions. It's an extreme, extreme hoax and he totally bought it and it was a total lie, obviously, and he thought he'd moved two years for a small period into the future. It's ridiculous, it's hilarious, it's a great story. Um, thanks, uh, Simit. Now, have you ever been caught up in a hoax like that? Oh, I, I've got to admit, I did have a moment in uh, 2000 when... Um, on April Fools, the news report came through and um, Richard Wilkins announced on the Today Show that um, Australia had the Olympics taken away from them. And he literally said that on TV and I drove into work thinking that was true because of the corruption that um, was involved and it was a lie. I don't know if you've ever been caught up in it. But has human history, in a big way, been caught up in the biggest hoax of all time? that Jesus did not die or rise from the dead. Is a good Friday or a good joke day? That's the question we're really asking ourselves. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, it's good for us. It's good for us and for our souls and for our minds to consider Really, why do we believe it? What reasons do we have? If you're a skeptic, you don't think there's any validity to it, the thing you can do on Easter is ask yourself the same question. Can I be confident in those thoughts? Do, am, I, am I so confident that I'm happy to investigate and hear what Christianity has to offer? You see on your outline there, I've said that there's four things really that if they're not uh, made possible, well then we've got real questions. And often when it comes to the gospel story, the story of Jesus, 
people can say, it just can't be verified for all sorts of different reasons. It can't be verified. Secondly, how could it possibly be accurate? Seriously, it's Chinese whispers, right? So long ago, how could we possibly believe that it's accurate? The writings are too old. By that I mean they're way older than when it actually happened. If Jesus died and rose, say on 0 AD, uh, just for the sake of argument, if the writings are hun- you know, hundreds of years later or you know, 50 years, whatever they say they are, that's way too long ago. How can they be um, considered to be timely enough to be believed? And surely, the one that I've highlighted there, how can we know the gospel writers were not biased? That's a good, they're good questions, right? Every single Christian should have confidence in those questions and not just pass them by, I reckon. And how can we know that the gospel writers were not biased? What if their motives got in the road and that they lied a bit a little bit? That they had a brain explosion and needed to win the day and so lied? Everyone has motives. Everyone really does have a bias and they're telling the story and so have they used it for their own advantages? Before we get to the actual cross story, I think we want to take this head on, first of all. What we actually, uh, it's helpful for us to realise is, is that when it comes to motives, um, particularly when there's a crime that's done or when there's a, a challenge that's happened uh, that any, any you know, crime detective would tell you is that humanity has three motives which drive us. Um, if you turn over the page to the image that's for Sunday, you can see there where it says attested about the gospel writers. You can see those three motives there in the bottom right corner of that diagram if you flip it around. I think I put it up on the screen too. Um, you can see there. Is it up there? Yeah, on the, bo- on the bottom right there that they're attested that there's three motives that people take, that you're driven by financial gain, that you're driven by sexual lust or some kind of relational issue, and you're driven by the pursuit of power in whatever that looks like. Now, the gospel writers, maybe their bias is because of one of those. This diagram, taken out of um, a book that I've often mentioned, because I find it very helpful constantly, um, by Wallace, Warner Wallace, a, a, a crime, a homicide detective who used to deal in cold cases, who used his cold case um, methods to um, question the Gospels, who was a sceptic, who didn't believe they were true, and applied these um, principles to the Gospels and found them that they stood up. He points out these three uh, motives for bias which would cause serious doubt in the gospel. But the problem is, there is no evidence in any way in the Bible itself or any external evidence at all that the gospel writers had ulterior motives. So if we were thinking about they were driven by financial gain, the, the, the Bible talks over and over again how they give up everything, that they actually lived a poor existence, that they actually had no money. The Apostle Paul talks about it a lot in all of the New Testament letters about how he um, had very little. 
Uh, Wallace says, if they were living um, by fin- for financial gain, their lies didn't really seem to be working because they didn't thrive financially. And it wasn't just that they stayed the same, they gave up significant amounts. For those of us that have been coming, we've actually been travelling through the first nine uh, chapters of Luke's Gospel and we saw at the beginning when Jesus rocked up and he wanted to grab his followers and his disciples, he told them, leave your profession of work, come follow me, I'm not, gonna, I'm not paying you, I'm not giving you a job or career, I'm just telling you to come follow me and you need to give that up. And that is the model of what the early uh, eyewitnesses, the followers of Jesus, the Gospel writers particularly, that they had. There is not financial gain to be found in the gospel eyewitness accounts. Uh, Luke 18 uh, points that out if you're interested about when Peter talks about it. When we see about Peter rather. They're not driven by finances. In regards to um, sexual lust or relationships... It's really helpful to see that there is no external evidence whatsoever. There's no records at all indicating in any way that that was their motives. Instead, there was a revolution in how you think about relationships going on if you follow Jesus. The time and time again, you have one wife, not many that others often did, and you lived purity in that relationship and in fact instead of seeking out women and and going down this path for your own good times they would often give up even being with their spouses to go on these trips and journeys it's very very difficult in fact there's no evidence that anyone can argue other than we'd like to hypothesize that it's the case that they were driven this way lastly Maybe the one that should be argued the most by the sceptic, I reckon, that they were driven by the pursuit of power. Because after all, if we look through history, what is clear down the centuries is that Christianity did come into power. A few hundred years later, when the Roman Emperor, whether truly was converted or did it for political power reasons, Christianity got into the the seat of power and then... Christianity did actually thrive in that sense and did receive a significant amount of power and, and the Catholic Church, which was the only church at the time, extraordinary wealth and power. That's a challenge to that, isn't it? But let's be clear about when the Bible came together and the eyewitnesses were sharing their stories, the power that they got was to be persecuted and to be martyred. Nearly all of the uh, apostles, we have outside evidence from the Bible that they were martyred. There's a couple that it's not super solid, but for all of them, we see that this is the case. The uniform experience of persecution. The Roman emperor wanted to destroy them. Let me uh, just pull up the basis for this um, as we um, uh, think this through. You see... I just wanted to point out to this quote that I forgot to pull up. Let me grab it. Here it is. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hatred for their abominations called Christians. He sought out to destroy them if they proclaimed that message. 
That was the context in which they wrote. We no prospect of that changing. It's very difficult to see how they were driven by power. So it's very hard to say that the accounts we have of theirs are biased. There's still lots to ask about whether we can trust in them, but it's good to know that the gospel writers, even though they're telling the story that they believe in, there's reason to think that it's no hoax at all. So the question I want to ask, getting to Good Friday and the death of Jesus, is what confidence can we have that Jesus actually died? Now, you may be thinking, or you may not, there may be some here who think, oh, maybe he didn't even exist. Um, but I always thought, you know, the issue isn't his death, the issue is that he came back alive. But I don't know if you're aware that throughout history, history is constantly being told that Jesus never really actually died. Um, it's one of the key um, tenets and different uh, different. Um, realities between the Quran and Islam and Christianity. The Quran very clearly states that Jesus didn't die, it was a scam, and somehow the, the disciples pulled Jesus down off the cross and put someone else up there. It's very hard to see why we can just have the same God then, isn't it, in that case, if we say everything is about his death and resurrection. But in 1929, 1965, 1972, 1982, many scholars have said Jesus just kind of fainted. It's called the swoon theory. Like he just kind of, he just kind of fainted out of the pain of it all and then he was just kind of brought back to life. And Aussies got involved in it. There's a, an, an, an Aussie academic who claimed Barbara Thiering in 1992 that Jesus didn't really die. It was just a resuscitation. It's not, like why are we all worried about this death thing? And if you don't think this matters, it matters because there are many very popular modern-day atheists who with no credibility in this area and with no academic basis for saying it, say things like, well, if Jesus did die, which I seriously doubt, like Richard Dawkins has said that, and other atheists like him, whether he really, was he really alive in the first place? And people read that and think, oh, okay, maybe he didn't. Did he actually die? Here's the thing, when we investigate the time, it's very clear that Jesus was flogged and the floggings were known to be brutal. If you ever saw the Passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson put together, lots of debate about whether he went too far or in the way he portrayed the beatings. Whether he did or he didn't, the reality was 39 lashings in containing a whip with leather and metal balls on it is excruciatingly painful and causes a person to be in critical death. Some died before they got to the cross. I'm not going to hold back in talking about some of these details because I think it's good for us and particularly when we reflect on who Jesus is. There's terrible effects of this type of uh, beating. Uh, A well-known American doctor who was talking with... um, uh, Josh McDowell, uh, sorry, Lee Strobel, who was a guy who tried to investigate Christianity and he was telling him about, is there medical evidence? He said that there is no doubt in his mind that Jesus had, yeah, I'm going to give you a medical term because I know we've got lots of nurses, hypovolemic shock. Now I'm giving you a chance, some of you training to be doctors or nurses, what's hypovolemic shock? 
Correct. Well done. Gave them a chance and they succeeded. You can continue to be a nurse crawler. Um, <laughs> hypovolemic shock, right? Loss of blood in a serious way that your body goes into shock is the reality that Jesus was facing and he actually collapsed and it's a very good possibility. It's because his body is starting to already fail. Now some skeptics say, and we read the accounts and we will reflect on them later, that Jesus had nails put into him, that that didn't happen. Actually, history says they just used ropes. But the reality is, that's true. But they also use nails sometimes. And we actually have archaeological evidence which says that they actually did. And we've actually found nails in 1968 um, that were seven inch long. Uh, people who were on the cross. But did you know, I didn't know this until I was doing all the reading um, over this little while, that the nails put here in his wrist, um, so painful as they hit the nerves, that it was so unbearable that they didn't have a word for it. So you know what word it is? It's a word that we use all the time when we're in pain. Excruciating. It was that painful. Out of cross is what excruciating means. In Psalm 2, uh this person who dies, body is going to be stretched. The bones are out of joint. And there's no doubt that being put up on a cross, your bones are stretched. And when your bones are stretched and out of joint, crucifixion is so painful, asphyxiation, asphyxiation is reality. You can't avoid cardiac arrest when you stop breathing at the point of no longer being able to hold your body up. There's no doubt, just from the evidence that we have, if what we see are accurate and there's no ulterior motives to tell it how it is, that Jesus died. And just to confirm it, the soldiers thrust a spear as if that was needed. But if a spear goes right through in into the heart, he's dead. Some skeptics say, yeah, but the soldiers, maybe they got it wrong. They're not, they're soldiers, they're not doctors. That's the classic, we're so much better than people of the old days time. We know things better than them, just because we've learnt some more stuff over time. But just consider being a Roman soldier and your job, your job is to kill the wicked people on the cross and you don't do it. What's going to happen to you? What was literally at stake for a soldier in making sure they killed someone was their life. There is no doubt it's fanciful to think that Jesus didn't die on the cross whatsoever. And it's good for us to understand that reality. When people, and I will have no doubt at some point in your life, someone will say that. Did he really die? The gospel accounts and their reliability, and we'll look at more of the reliability on Sunday as well, attest to what the external evidence says. And those that don't even believe in him have said, some Jewish historians, that Jesus died on the cross. So what happened on that cross? What actually happened? I want us to finish today by thinking about what it means for us. I think that's always a good thing to do on Good Friday. But what actually happened? And I wanted to just point to three things that actually happened 
while Jesus was on the cross. Two things he did and then everything that was happening around him. You can see that on the bottom of the outline. Jesus offered forgiveness. Jesus offered life with him. There was many people responding, responding to what they saw in very different ways. In light of reflecting on the death, an innocent man that we just talked about, that we saw in the video, that we will end in thoughtful meditation at the end of the service. Jesus is there, looking at those that have put him there. And as you can see on the outline, he says in verse 34, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. God himself, in our place, is offering forgiveness. It's very hard to just let Good Friday being a day off if we're willing to entertain the notion that the God of all history who creates all things is facing such immense physical pain, never mind the greater pain and facing the wrath of all mankind's sin, cries out, forgive those people. Not those, all of us. And in that forgiveness, he offered life with him. As we see, uh, there was two soldiers with him that Luke records. One wanted to have a go at him, we'll see in a moment, and one thought, well, my life, I deserve to be here. And all I can say is he didn't. And he asks Jesus to remember him. And Jesus says to him in verse 43, these words are extraordinary. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is saying, the promise that I can give at the point where I look the most despised, the despicable, cursed, where I am right now, where there is no other thing in history at that point that is seen to be more disgraceful and more of an abomination. The Romans could not have thought of anything else. This was the best effort they had to be so portray the wicked and those that have done Rome wrong. There he is, and he offers eternal life with him. That is what he has done on the cross. It's very hard for us to think that it's just a day off if Jesus, God's Son, is saying on this day, the offer of eternal life is for all humanity. And yet, on that day, not just the days when we remember year after year, on that very first day, 
there were people looking and responding on very differently, weren't there? Verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others, let him save himself. If he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. As we saw in that video, the, the followers, the, the, the rulers, the, those that are supposed to be pointing to this moment did everything they could to try and prove that Jesus is a fraud. People being swept up in it, sneering at him, stood watching and thinking, what a joke this guy is. He is no Messiah. The Messiah, the chosen one. They were waiting for this revolutionary leader who was going to destroy Rome and take Israel into its glory. And here he is on a Roman cross. People looked and people thought, how pathetic. Like the criminal who said, verse 36, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Here's a guy who deserves to be there. It's really stark. Someone who deserves to be on the cross, who's claiming to the one who doesn't deserve to be to the cross, to the, <laughs> to the Lord of all. Are you kidding me? Save me. And without Jesus... We can say to God, give me everything from you, but I don't want you. That's kind of what this criminal is saying. And then there was a very different response, as I've already alluded to, by the, the other one on the other side who said, don't you fear God? He says to him, remember me in verse 42, he says. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's another response. When you look at Jesus on the cross, who's done nothing wrong, and you ask him to remember you, to accept our errors, to forgive us. He saw Jesus and thought he had done nothing wrong. And that's what the centurion saw. Verse 47 a Roman centurion who was overcome with confusion, who's seeing a man on, the, on their barbaric destruction for the thieves and the robbers and those that have done wrong, and he says in verse 47, Surely this was a righteous man. See, what happened on the cross was Jesus offering forgiveness offering life and people around him responding in very different ways. What does it all mean for us? How do we go beyond just the looking at it on face value? See, what does it all mean? This week, um, when I was working on this very talk in a cafe and um, uh, one of the um, waiters was very friendly and lovely, always says hello to people, was friendly and there was a group of people there um, and she said to them, gave them their coffees and said, oh, are you looking forward to Easter? And this uh, man said, oh, nothing changes for me, I'm retired, 
I can sleep in any time. As I'm literally thinking about this at that time, it became stark for me that nothing does change if we don't consider Jesus on the cross. That if all Good Friday is, is a day off, we are like the people looking on Maybe not sneering outrightly, but we're just indifferent. Our backs are turned. Can we continue to go on doing that? What does it mean? Well, Jesus does come back alive. Sorry to give away the story. (laughs) But he comes back alive and we're going to celebrate that and reflect on it and ask some hard questions about, come on, really? Resurrection from the dead on Sunday. When he comes back alive, he says these great words. Um, they're there, verse 44 of chapter 24. And he says, uh, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Jesus said, I've been telling you all along, which we've been seeing in Luke, we've been seeing that the Old Testament, Jesus keeps bringing up and saying it's about him. And he says, when he's resurrected, he's saying, guys, you haven't quite got it yet, but it's coming. You're going to get it very soon. The Holy Spirit's going to come and sort it out for you. But what I've been telling you is everything in the Bible is about me and about what's just happened and about the life that comes out of that. That's when he sums it up with, uh, what does he say? The, the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, sort of all of their you know, God books are about him so helpful to us the whole idea that it can be verified and accurate and timely if you do any significant research into the extraordinary way promises of way old are fulfilled so succinctly there are serious questions to ask about how could that be possible how could it be a sham and i just thought i'd give you one example to see what it really means Cat really helpfully read for us Isaiah 53 that happened hundreds of years ago where Isaiah was talking to the people on the problem of their their exile and they're needing a suffering servant to come for them. And this servant's going to die. In verse 4 of Psalm 53, it says, Surely he, the suffering servant, took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. What does it mean? He on the cross isn't just unfairly being treated. He is taking our punishment, our suffering. And at that time, he's considered punished by God, he's stricken by him and he's afflicted. He was, verse 5, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. What does it mean? It means very clearly you and I have such a problem with God, whether we want to admit it or not, that we are rebels, our hearts have turned from him without Jesus, that what was required was for God himself to send his son, Jesus, the Lord of all, to be pierced for our transgressions. The breaking of the, the, 
relational laws. He was crushed for our iniquities, our rejecting God's way. The punishment that we deserved, he took, and it brings us peace. Your pain that needs to be healed, the reason that Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, is because everything that stops us being with him he is facing at that moment. Verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. That was what God wanted all along for you and for me. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgression. What does it mean? God has stepped into your shoes. No, no, more than that. God has stepped into your place. Taken your rebellion on him and dealt with it. He has made it So there is no barrier between him and you. There is no other day that should be called good more than this day. Whenever we are tempted to think I'm not good enough for God, This is the day you need to go back to. Because he, by his blood, is saying you are. What does it mean? It means humanity. But let's be clear, it means you right here today. And be forgiven if you wanted to acknowledge you need forgiveness. And have life with your God forever. That's what it means.